Mother's Day is just a few weeks away. Get her something exquisite and unforgettable. David Yerman, America's foremost luxury jewelry brand, was started by a sculptor and a painter. Every DY collection features artistic designs executed with the finest craftsmanship and hand-finished details. The David Yerman Mother's Day campaign, Forever Linked, celebrates the enduring bond between mothers and their children. David Yerman has curated a variety of necklaces, rings, bracelets, and earrings in their online Mother's Day shop at davidyerman.com. Whether it's classic cable designs, personalized amulet pendants, or a stunning Carlisle collection piece, explore heirloom-worthy styles at a variety of price points. There's something for every mom. Modeled by actor Scarlett Johansson and other brand ambassadors, this is jewelry your mother will treasure forever. Discover the selection now at davidyerman.com. Happy Saturday. It's April 29th, 2023, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in London. And I'm Michael Haney in New York City. And we are two of your editors here at Airmail who are neither beautiful nor damned, but we are going to be talking about both today on the show. Welcome. Well, I would say you're beautiful. One of us is at least, so. I'm so sorry. I'm so mean. I didn't even think about that. Michael, you are beautiful. You're a work of art, my dear. No, I'm damned. I'm damned. <laughs> damned if I am, damned if I'm not. Okay, never mind. Maybe we're both. That's the theme of this show today, the beautiful and the damned. And I don't even know where should we begin. And guess what, Michael? This might also be a Harry and Megan free show. Yeah, I would welcome that because we have a show full of great surprises. We don't need people like that. First, as we get ready for King Charles's coronation and Camilla prepares to succeed in becoming the first divorcee to be crowned queen Lois Rogers is going to join us from London with the inside story on the machinations of the previous divorcee who aspired to that title, Wallace Simpson. And then, speaking of women and machinations, Rich Cohen has the crazy true story of United Airlines, men-only flights, complete with free cigars and flight attendants who had to be unmarried. And finally, John Lahr is here to remember his good friend, Barry Humphreys, the extraordinary comic talent behind Dame Edna. So it's a great show, Ashley. Where would you like to go in all this? Let's let Rich Cohen take us on a little bit of a romp through the 1960s when United Airlines was rather contrarian, in fact. Rich is a writer at large for Airmail. He's usually writing about murders and other scandalous things for us. But today he tackles the executive flight. Welcome, Rich Cohen. Thank you. Glad to be here. Rich, it's often the case that when I read your stories, I think this, the reality is stranger than fiction. But this story in particular just seems like it was left on the cutting room floor of the TV show Mad Men. But it actually was something that your dad experienced. So first of all, tell us about this like little tidbit that your dad dropped into your lap. Well, my father, who just tomorrow actually is turning 90. I grew up in Chicago and we were doing a thing that people of my generation often do, which is tell our kids about how much smoke was on airplanes when back in the day. We were basically flying in these smoke-filled tubes in the sky. My father interrupted us to tell us about a flight he really liked when he was younger was called the executive, and he listed it was all, only men, no women, no kids, but that's not why he liked it. He liked it because they gave everybody a free cigar. The way he just said it sounded, I didn't believe it could exist, and I kind of laughed at him, and then I went, I did, I just did some research, and in fact, it did exist, which I couldn't believe. It was like a story from the past that was the kind of thing you're told that you think could not have actually happened in America as late as the early 70s it was still going on or the late 60s. So this was a flight that flew for businessmen from New York, Chicago, 
and back and from San Francisco to LA six days a week at like one flight, which was five o'clock. So it's supposed to be business guys. And the flight was only men, no women, no kids. They served a steak. They served a cigar. They served martinis. And I guess they just stole the play with smoke and talked about business. True or false, Rich. Also, the flight attendants had to be single. There's a whole forum you can find online of flight attendants who were actually worked on the executive and were told that they had to, as soon as they got engaged, they had to be put on a different route. They had to be single. They had to be young and single. This went on until it was boycotted. United Airlines was boycotted or picketed by National Organization of Women about this flight. And ultimately, the flight just kind of became too much of an anachronism to survive. I mean, Rich, I'm a feminist, card-carrying, but I have to tell you, like, I have a sense of nostalgia for this, even though I never would have been allowed on it. Do you think if if they could have just admitted women, then all of a sudden this thing would still be going on? Because it does sound like an awful lot of fun. Well, the people who talk about it talk about how much they would like being on a plane without kids. And I understand that. They want there to be a flight without kids. I have a bunch of kids, so I'm usually the person that's being hated on when they're in the plane. But I think if they had a flight and they changed the name somehow, they made it more about no kids, because I don't think anyone's ready for the cigars either. But the rest of it, the steaks, the martinis, and the no kids, I think would probably be a very big winner for United today. It wasn't terribly expensive either. Well, yeah, it was cheap. I think it was 60 bucks round trip, 67. Then it went up at the end, but at the beginning, or maybe 67 one way. But the thing is, every seat on the flight was a first class seat. Now, these were planes from a different era. They were big prop planes. So they were like big war horses in the sky. And the flight was long for to Chicago. It was over three hours, which is now it's more like an hour and a half. Well, I like, too, that we keep mentioning the cigars, and yet that was the impetus for United to start this airline, because the guy said, I can't, I want to smoke cigars on the plane. I mean, talk about customer service. They were very, very responsive back in the day. Yeah, I mean, I think we were much more of a cigar-smoking culture back then. My father, one of the main things in my childhood was going to the mall to visit the humidor and look at the cigars. Every time we went anywhere, we had to go find the biggest cigar shop, and he would browse the cigars, so... I think that there was more of a need for people or desire for people to smoke cigars in the sky. And that was just intolerable to enough people that it started with the idea of creating a flight just for the cigar smoke. You'd be in kind of this smoking club in the sky. And then they included the pipe smokers and the steak eaters and they were a business. It seems to have like also like served as this kind of bridge between, I think as you note in your story, that bridge between the old rail service smoking car with the Lakeshore Limited that would have gone between New York and Chicago. And as that's sort of like fading post-war, this thing sort of comes into existence to sort of be a flying version of the Lakeshore Limited smoking car. Right. And I think that there was more of a sense of people drinking, people unwinding and people acting in a certain way after work. And I think that lasted up until recently. I remember I live in Connecticut now when they shut down the drinking car on the commuter train to coastal Connecticut. That was like a big deal. There was an article about it at the time. It was a holdover that lasted a real long time. So there used to be this sense of these kind of public spaces where people would get drunk with strangers. And that's basically what the plane was. And that doesn't really exist in our culture so much anymore. So And I really think that they saw it as a way to create this kind of club atmosphere that people would enjoy. And you can go back, actually, and look at the commercials for this flight. You can find them online and for other United flights about husbands and wives flying together and should they or shouldn't they and all this stuff. And it really is like Mad Men. I mean, I was a huge fan of that show and 
I think that show was so good because it was so accurate to what life was like at that time. And I think too, Rich, like the more unbearable air travel becomes, the more nostalgia we have for these sorts of moments, even though if you look at it through a 2023 lens, yes, it's sexist. Yes, it's exclusionary. Yes, yes, yes. There are all these problems with it. But I mean, what are we going to make of the fact in 20 years that like now you get on a flight and you're handed the little hand wipe and a six ounce can of Coke and you're supposed to be grateful for having had the experience getting off the tarmac at all? Listen, I think what's happened is, is the airlines, I mean, I haven't done any research on this, but it seems like during the Reagan days, they deregulated plane travel. It became much more competitive whole routes disappeared and the whole name of the game became you only fly the plane with as many passengers jammed in there as possible. And it's become so stressful for people flying that the response was, the normal response would have been, let's offer flights with far fewer seats and let people be like people on these planes. But instead, the response is like, let's give everybody sort of Xanax before their flight so they can pass out so they can get through it without being conscious. And then you have one of the whole subgenres of the internet are just people losing their minds on airplanes and planes have being forced to land and everything. And I think that's directly proportional to the amount of people they stack into those planes. It's kind of inhuman. And though this flight was prejudicial and everything else, everything bad that it was, it also recognized that you could take something that people had to do and make it less unpleasant. Yeah, it was almost like a commercial version of private flight before like private became. You're getting an elevated level of service and you're with other guys doing business and there you go. I think some men kind of welcomed the next hour. Extra hour took to get them home. Maybe one more drink. So what's the rush? Yeah, and they also, one of the things they had is they gave you the market at closing because the flight was at five. So these guys would probably get in the cab in New York like at four and no lines, no security. Well, I think security really started in the 70s. And they just like walk up and get on the plane and they'd give them the closing prices at the market, which is kind of a little, to me, a little premonition of the current era. Because this idea that you have to be connected and you have to get the most recent numbers at the minute they're released, that was kind of the new world coming into view at the end of this old world. One thing my father, who this story started with, was always talking about the difference between the what and the how. The what is you're flying from New York to Chicago. The how is how it's done. I mean, they could load you, they can knock you unconscious and put you in a big pile and you get to Chicago. But people will pay a little more and be much better, feel better, if they get a little bit more of the how, which is don't treat me like a garment bag. Well, Rich, as we head into summer travel season, you've really given us a lot to think about and a lot to lament. So we appreciate that. But don't forget, you can always bring your own cigar. You just can't light it up, but you can always just have it in your pocket. and You can chew on it. Exactly. I don't think Churchill ever lit those cigars. I think he just chewed on them. Rich, thank you so much. We look forward to speaking to you again, hopefully about something kind of like this, because this is great. Yeah. Okay. Have a great weekend. Safe travels, Rich. See you later. I love that story. Love, love, love. Like, I'm envious. Like, they wouldn't have let me within 10 feet of the executive flight, but I still want to go on one. And this is why I love Rich's reporting. Like, who knew a story like that even existed anymore? And then here, his father just drops it on him like just a little pearl of, everyone knows this, so. Well, also unrelated, related-ish, Rich's dad sounds pretty cool. I'd like to talk to that guy. Yeah, if you haven't read Rich's book about his father, who was a master negotiator, highly recommend it. It's a lot of fun. What's it called, Michael? It is called The Adventures of Herbie Cohen, world's greatest negotiator. Just came out last year, so highly recommend that. All right, there's more Rich Cohen where that came from. But first, just when you thought the story of Wallace Simpson had been tread and retread just in time for the coronation, we've got more juice about how Wallace Simpson 
almost destroyed the life of her best friend. Lois Rogers, a writer based in London, is here to unfurl the mystery of Wallace Simpson's other betrayal. Welcome, Lois. Okay, Lois, we know a lot about Mrs. Simpson, but it turns out there was another Mrs. Simpson whose story is instrumental to that of the first. So tell us a little bit about Mary Kirk. Yeah, really extraordinary story, which adds to everything we know about Wallace in that she was the most extraordinary, manipulative, scheming, nasty piece of work, really. And so Mary had been her friend since they met when they were 16. She had kind of cultivated Mary because Mary was had better social connections and came from the sort of wealthy family that Wallace wanted to be associated with. So even from her mid-teens, she kind of knew where she wanted to go. So she wasn't going to have a career. She was going to find a rich man and organise her life for herself that way. And Mary was a kind of conduit to that. But I think it was a genuine friendship in that Mary didn't really realise until 20 years later exactly how she'd been set up. So both Mary was married once before and all sort of during their early earlier lives and Wallace Simpson was married twice before when she got her hooks into the, the Prince of Wales. But Mary provided a sort of useful conduit for Wallace Simpson, and right up until Mary realised that she had been duped into being the other woman in Ernest Simpson and Wallace's divorce. So, so just as you note in your story, I mean, Wallace Simpson, I think you describe her as her friend, lifelong friend since the time they were in boarding school, describes her later as a gold-digging adventurous, selfish, hard, calculating, ambitious, scheming, and dangerous. And this is a woman who clearly, if we didn't know, is a climber. And then they're both married as young women. And then she basically... Can you just explain how she uses Mary and deceives her into becoming a pawn in breaking up her marriage to her husband, Ernest? She got Mary, who's also American, to come to England because Mary's previous marriage was collapsing. And so she got Mary to come and stay with them, with her and Ernest, for protracted periods of time while she was conducting her relationship with the king or the Prince of Wales, as he then was. So Mary was being used as the kind of camouflage. And Mary didn't realise that she was being sort of set up by Wallace to appear publicly as Ernest's mistress. So when it suited Wallace to try to arrange a divorce, she was lining Mary up as the person with whom her husband would be seen to have committed adultery, although Wallace obviously was having an affair with the Prince of Wales for a long time before that, but she wanted to appear as the innocent party in her own divorce. So for Mary to be the other woman in that divorce was going to be very convenient for what. And she hoped that if she did that, she could appear as someone who didn't have any kind of guilty secrets and would be able to become the Queen of England, which... No, and the more you know about it, the more it seems extraordinary, like something from a sort of soap opera, a real life one. Lois, why have we not heard about Mary's story until now? I think because there was the, obviously the adultery was a setup because at that time, the only way you could be divorced was by proving adultery, which basically meant a witness being 
brought to the court who would testify that an unmarried couple had been seen in bed together in a hotel. So this was a sort of avenue that was only open to rich people, really, because the sort of people who could afford to go to hotels, bribe staff in the hotels to testify in court that they'd seen them in bed together. And there was meant to be no collusion in it. So the courts went to huge lengths to try to prevent couples who wanted to divorce sort of setting things up so that one of the parties could be found in bed with any random person. (laughs) And then a divorce could be organised. So she set Mary up to be this kind of dupe for, obviously, for years. And Mary, probably maybe two or more years, she was kind of lining up a scenario where she could persuade her husband on the basis that Mary's name would never be made public. They would be found in bed together a servant in the hotel would testify in court that he'd seen them in bed together and Wallace would then get a divorce. There was meant to be no collusion in this, but it was known by the establishment that there was total collusion and that this divorce would not pass muster, as it were, as a genuine case because lots of people knew that Wallace Simpson was spending whole weeks with the Prince of Wales. They went on holiday together. She stayed with him for protected periods of time. There were plenty of servants who would have seen them in bed together. But the reason we haven't heard about her is because if it was known that there was collusion in this divorce, it would have sort of expanded the scandal that surrounded the abdication crisis and made it even more of a big deal because it would have been made clear that lots of people knew that Wallace was in an adulterous relationship with the Prince of Wales for some considerable time. But she had used this other woman, Mary Kurt, to try to look like the innocent party. Then it has been comprehensively covered up. And it's also terribly sad because clearly Mary Kirk and Ernest Simpson did have a loving relationship which didn't last very long because Mary died from cancer shortly when their only child was just two years old. Quite sad. But I got interested because I thought it was interesting that her whole life had been kind of concealed and her death was concealed. Lois, there are a lot of parallels being made between the life of Wallace Simpson and the life of Camilla Parker Bowles, now Queen Consort. What do the two have in common, if anything, in your view? Nothing, I hope. I think Camilla Parker Bowles is probably quite a breath of fresh air. And they are obviously a popular couple in this country, as far as one can tell. I mean, as I'm sure you know, there is an increasing undercurrent of unease about the cost of the monarchy here and whether they're an anachronism. But I don't think Camilla Parker Bowles in any way set out to become queen. I absolutely don't. I think if you'd asked her 20 years ago whether she thought this would happen, she would have said no. And certainly in her younger life, she wouldn't have expected things to go like this. She presumably expected to go on being the secret lover of Prince Charles indefinitely. Or maybe she thought it would peter out, I don't know. But she certainly hasn't demonstrated a desire like Wallace did to rise to that sort of social status. Wallace is in a league of her own of social climbers. Lois, thank you so much, not only for your wonderful story, but for all of your insights here. Thank you for making time. Thank you very much. Mother's Day is just a few weeks away. 
Get her something exquisite and unforgettable. David Yerman, America's foremost luxury jewelry brand, was started by a sculptor and a painter. Every DY collection features artistic designs executed with the finest craftsmanship and hand-finished details. The David Yerman Mother's Day campaign, Forever Linked, celebrates the enduring bond between mothers and their children. David Yerman has curated a variety of necklaces, rings, bracelets, and earrings in their online Mother's Day shop at davidyerman.com. Whether it's classic cable designs, personalized amulet pendants, or a stunning Carlisle collection piece, explore heirloom-worthy styles at a variety of price points. There's something for every mom. Modeled by actor Scarlett Johansson and other brand ambassadors, this is jewelry your mother will treasure forever. Discover the selection now at davidyerman.com. Well, we lost an all-time great in the world of comedy this week with the death of Sir Barry Humphreys, better known as his character, Dame Edna. We're fortunate to have John Lahr here to discuss his life, work, and legacy. John is not only a second-to-none theater critic, but he has unparalleled experience with the greats of comedy. His father, Bert Lahr, was the celebrated American actor, best known for his role as the cowardly lion in The Wizard of Oz. Welcome, John. John, you met Barry 40 years ago. Take us back. Well... I went to an early 1981 show, and I laughed so hard at something he said. I can't remember what it was, but it was really illiberal. And I slipped out of my seat, and I, I really can't account for about two minutes of the show. I was either was unconscious, or I was completely taken. I wrote a piece about him then, and we got to know each other. And I wanted to write about him, because I could recognize, I grew up with a great clown, my father, Bert Barr. And I know the difference between good and great. And I saw that he had that kind of crazy gene. He was the real thing, the absolute comic. And so I asked and he agreed to let me write about him in the way I wanted to, which was backstage. And I wrote a book called They Made the Average and the Rise of Western Civilization, Backstage with Barry Humphreys. And I think, to my best of my knowledge, it's the only book ever written about a comedian from backstage because like all magicians, they don't like to show their tricks or how they do it. But I really wanted to, I guess, actually, if I'm honest, wanted to revisit the world of my father and the mystery, which is really was confounding as a child, not now as an adult, of what happens when the ordinary citizen crosses that threshold and becomes extraordinary. And so that's what I was doing. And what I, I so I spent about six weeks with him on the road and it, as luck would have it, the show, the version of his touring, essentially vaudeville show, was a review, was the best edition. It was called They Made the Average Back with a Vengeance. And so popular was Barry and so good that he played the Drury Lane Theater, which is the biggest theater in London and most famous, the first to come back to the theater in the restoration. And it seats 2,100 people. And he played in that house to full capacity, 100% capacity for the length of his run. I mean, he was incredibly popular. I mean, he did sensationally funny things on stage and really innovative. I mean, in the show that I was reporting, he set up a joke about the people in the balcony whom he called paupers because of the cheap seats. And by the finale, he called them paupers or paups. He got in a cherry picker and he, the cherry picker went all the way up above the stalls so that he could sing to the people in the balcony and making jokes all the time, right? Sensational things. At the end of his act, always, he had what he called a gladi damarum, 
where the gladiola, which is the Australian national flower, and incidentally, a fabulous phallic symbol, he threw them all out to the audience. And it's a setup, but somebody in the balcony that everybody can see says, Edna, here, here. And he throws one, backhands it all the way up to the balcony. And they had a stuntman dressed as a woman who falls out of the balcony. And what his pleasure was, he would hand out, he suddenly said, he would say, here, here. They bed to suddenly from the stage had blankets. And people would daring paying customers would run over with the blankets and hold it under the dangling stunt person as if the person actually fell they could catch the guy and the line that broke me up was said oh thank goodness thank goodness good thing this doesn't happen every night i remember taking my son when he was now 47 when he was like 10 to a show and saying this is how you're going to remember your life the time you saw Barry Humphreys. He was really a character actor in a dress, making points about life. And what it allowed Barry to do, unlike most comedians, of the great ones like my father, whose comedy came out of desperation from poverty, Barry's desperation was from privilege. He was raised in a very comfortable and prim and unloving family in Australia. What's fascinating about him was he became his parents' nightmare. They were prim, they were conservative, and Barry was daring and outrageous. And his influence was Dadaism and doing these events, which were intended to both astonish and startle. And this was the wonderful thing of the character, was to turn that hatred into disdain that he had. And so Dave Edna could say anything to anybody that was absolutely withering. And at the same time, the laughter excused it. But is there anyone in the U.S. or anywhere that sort of picks up his mantle now? Not really. The Americans don't have the pantomime tradition that the English do. Even in his later years as a successful citizen, occasionally he would go out and do something just to make a memorable moment in ordinary citizens' lives, something that they'd never remember. And I don't know if you know what the bus queues are like in England, but they all have a little trash can beside the sign. And he went along and he varied a split of champagne and chicken in the trash. And he came back dressed as, this is for his own private pleasure, dressed as a sort of hobo and riffled through the garbage. We call it here dumpster diving. And there's nothing more humiliating to see somebody picking through the garbage and hate the garbage and find that lines of people looking at this guy doing this. And he found a split of champagne and chicken and walked off. Just never forget that moment. And he was into making those impromptu a little astonishment. There's a psychology about it. Yeah, that's incredible. That's incredible. There are a lot of sharp comedians and really good comedians in America. I really like, I mean, and have followed over the years. But the texture of Barry, partially because of his education and the range of his knowledge, that what he was satirizing, the illusions, it was very deep and tasty. And there was no, it's like looking at a painting where every part of the canvas has been carefully attended to. He gets away with it because the audience wants him to be David. So it's a sort of agreement that he is real, that he, she, exists. And when Dame Edna, under Dame Edna's name, published her autobiography called My Gorgeous Life in England, it was in the London Times bestseller list under nonfiction not fiction. I mean, that's how deep the allegiance to the character in that English culture is. There was no one liking it. Thank you, John. And it's great to see you. And we'll see you soon. 
We have a lot of theatricality in this week's issue, Michael. Some of it courtesy of an actor, some just courtesy of life. And some of it unplanned theatricality. Don Draper Airlines up and flying high overhead. So How did Matthew Weiner miss that, by the way? Like, that should have been an entire episode of Mad Men. Yeah, they could have been a competitor for Mohawk Air when they're trying to get the Mohawk Airlines count. Oh, Mohawk Airlines. God, it used to be so chic. Like, the outfits used to be so incredible, too, the fashion. Anyway, oh, how the mighty have fallen. I was on British Airways this week, and they gave me, like, I'm not even getting, like, a thimble full of water and charged me two pounds, 80 pounds for it. Like, thanks, guys. Yeah, that's so good. All right, Michael, say the weekend. We've got a week before the coronation. I know that the clock is ticking, but surely you have some way that we can pass the time from fretting about what Camilla's going to wear. Hint, it's Bruce Oldfield. I do. Everyone's been consumed, ourselves included, by the return of succession. But I realize there's another show that has has returned for its final season and it's called Barry. Have you watched Barry, Ashley? Who do you think I am, Michael? Okay. Every week you're like, have you seen this? I'm like, absolutely not. So no, I've not seen Barry either. Tell me more. Okay, then I just want to take this moment to say if you haven't watched Barry in the past five years, what are you waiting for? In short, it's the comedy that stars Bill Hader, who I think might be one of the best actors, period. And he plays a hitman in Los Angeles who decides to become an actor. And I just say, I really believe this is one of the most inventive shows of the past decade. The Gears Hater displays are amazing. He plays comedy, plays pathos, suspense, action. And if you're used to seeing him as just some guy like Stefan on Saturday Night Live, you'll be blown away by what he does in this show. But it's more than a one-man show. You've got Henry Winkler. He's here as his acting coach. And there are just many, 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 many more characters. Do yourself a favor. Start with season one and it'll carry you for quite a while. It's fantastic. It's called Barry, and it's on HBO Max, or soon to be Max, as they're going to tell us very soon. And you, my dear, what would you recommend this week? Well, I've got a little bit of theater news. I just saw The Motive in the Queue at the National here in London. What a fantastic play. So this play gives us the backstory behind the 1964 Broadway production of Hamlet, which starred Richard Burton and was directed by Sir John Gilgud. And it is really enjoyable. Okay, so you've got Tuppence Middleton, who plays... Elizabeth Taylor. She and Burton are newlyweds in the play, and it gives you sort of some insight into their relationship. If you're curious in Broadway history and you want the backstory for how one of the most successful Shakespeare productions of all time came together and the infighting behind the scenes that made it such a dynamic, intense situation and therefore production, this is the play for you to see. It's called The Motive in the Queue. It's at the National Theater in London, directed by Sam Mendes. Sounds great. All right. We wish you a wonderful weekend full of many coronation prep-related activities. And we'll see you back here next week. Michael, will you please read us out? Absolutely. And I want to thank our sponsor, David Yerman. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan. And our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Collette Quintet, a new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music, but most of all, thank you again for joining us. <laughs>